Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Good morning, and listen, and uh, welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and uh, this morning I am joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing there, Nathan? Good, Clinton. It's, glad to be, uh, it's really good to be back with you. Yeah. Uh, it's been a little while since we've done one of these interviews. Uh, we've got the um, coronavirus thing going on, of course, and uh, hopefully everyone out there is uh, keeping themselves safe, washing their hands, doing the whole social distancing thing. And, you know, thankfully that allows our podcast to continue because Nathan and I aren't in the same room when we record. Although now I do have to record from home instead of recording from my church as usual. Well, you and me, Clinton, since we're both introverted, we were doing social distancing before everybody thought it was cool. That's true. We've been we've been preparing for this our whole lives. Yeah, now's our time to shine. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, as I've seen uh, going around Facebook, uh, an image saying, "Right now, we can help the country by staying home and sitting in front of our televisions. Let's not screw this up." Yep. Uh, I saw a funny uh, health advertisement uh, since I work for a zoo, saying that to practice social distancing, stay a lion's length away from other people, which Pretty decent advice. I've seen that. I've also seen stay a sword to length away. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I may have seen a lion in person because I've been to the zoo before, but it's been a while. So I, I guess we'll have to kind of uh, assume how long a lion is. We could get creative with it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Walk around with a little cardboard lion or something. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, today, uh, as, as we mentioned, we have an interview this morning with Fazel Rana, and he's our, our guest for, the, for uh, this interview. And so Fazel Rana, or Fuzz, as, he, as he's known, is the Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. He's the author of several groundbreaking books, including Who Was Adam, Creating Life in the Lab, The Cell's Design, and Dinosaur Blood in the Age of the Earth. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. Fuzz, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. 
yeah, uh, we appreciate you uh, giving of your time this morning to talk to us about uh, an issue that's not only really fascinating, but one that uh, that is actually becoming more and more important as uh, science continues to make uh, breakthroughs and, and continue investigations. Yes, yes. Uh, we're going to be, uh, I, I think, talking about the whole idea of transhumanism and, in my opinion, uh, this idea is going to be one of the most influential ideas in the next couple of decades, really shaping our culture and cultures around the world. And it's going to shape uh, the practice of science and medicine. Well, for uh, anyone who is listening uh, at the 10 p.m. Pacific hour, uh, we're recording this show live. If you have a question for Fuzz, you can call in at 646-668-8257. Once again, that number is 646-668-8257. And, of course, you can also find the number on the webpage that you're listening to as well if you, uh, if you have a question but you've forgotten the number. So, as Fuzz mentioned, we're going to be talking about the topic of transhumanism today. And specifically, Fazel Rana and Ken, Kenneth Samples have written a book called Humans 2.0, which I'm reading through right now to provide a to provide a, a review of, and I'm actually finding it a, a very, very enjoyable read, actually. It's, it's well-written, and it talks about uh, a number of interesting things. And so Humans 2.0 is that book that we'll touch on, as well as, as uh, transhumanism. So, uh, Fuzz, the uh, first thing I'd like to ask the guests that come on is, why are you pro-life? What, what was kind of your, your journey to becoming pro-life? Yeah, well, you know, I didn't become a Christian until uh, much later in life. I was uh, 23 years old and a graduate student when I came to faith in Christ. Uh, but um, even, I think, before becoming a Christian, I held to some version of, of a pro-life view where, uh, as a, a life scientist, I thought the idea of looking at a, a human embryo as anything other than a bona fide human person which is simply uh, absurd, scientifically speaking. And so for me, I, I probably held to pro-life views uh, long before I uh, even became a, a Christian. And, of course, as a Christian, my, my view of human life is even now more, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I now much more appreciate the fact that, that every human life has inherent worth and value because of the image of God concept. So my, my view of human value and worth is, has intensified uh, as a, a Christian compared to being uh, to my view as a non-Christian because of the image of God concept. But nevertheless, even then, I, I, I held to this view uh, that, that a human embryo was a human being uh, and a human person because to me it, it's just literally self-evident. Any, any argument uh, contrary to that is largely... Um, uh, an argument that I think ignores the scientific reality and, and is usually an argument of convenience uh, and, 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 and employing arbitrary definitions to try to create uh, categories that don't, don't actually exist. Yeah. And the, the nature of the, of the embryo then of course is important to how you think about the topic of abortion, but it also has implications for transhumanism, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it, it most definitely does, because what we're seeing here is uh, that, that transhumanism, this idea uh, that has always been regarded as a fringe idea, 
has now been propelled into the mainstream in the academy and is rapidly gaining credibility even among uh, lay people, among the, 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 the men and women on the street, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this idea has credibility because of advances in biotechnology. And uh, in terms of uh, these, you know, advances in biotechnology, many of them have pro-life implications, either in terms of what the technology could do to improve the quality of people's lives or in terms of how that, that technology will actually be delivered. And many times its delivery is involving uh, you know, the creation and the manipulation of human embryos, whether it is through uh, stem cell uh, techniques, particularly embryonic stem cell techniques that would be used for tissue replacement therapies or, or, or for cell replacement therapies, or whether it's through doing gene editing to try to eliminate genetic disorders from the human gene pool. And so there is a significant uh, pro-life connection uh, to this idea of transhumanism, though it may not be evident at, at first glance. So give us a thumbnail then of what is meant by transhumanism. Yeah, and uh, probably many of your listeners uh, have not even heard of this concept, but they're probably familiar with the idea of transhumanism, though they may not be familiar with the term. Uh, And every time I I speak in front of audiences, I ask people, have you heard of transhumanism? And only a handful of people will raise their hands. Uh, But yet when I describe it, everybody nods their head. And it's this idea, in short, that we have a moral obligation to use science and technology to improve upon uh, our flaws as human beings and to try to transcend our natural biological limits. And, and the transhumanists, many of them are, who hold this view would be materialists or atheists who would argue that human beings are the product of an evolutionary history. And as a result of that, they would view human beings, again, as flawed, as having limitations that just simply reflect the outworkings of biological evolution. And so they argue that these limitations, these flaws create undue uh, or untold, I'm sorry, amounts of pain and suffering. And so if we can correct these flaws, we can transcend these limitations, we're going to promote human flourishing, we're going to minimize human pain and suffering, and it will move us towards some type of utopian future. In its most extreme form, many people view uh, transhumanist vision as essentially a way to attain practical immortality, where the argument would be that we could deploy these technologies to extend life expectancy on the order of hundreds and hundreds of years, and in doing so, attain some type of of practical immortality. So it really is almost uh, a a vision or an intellectual or cultural movement that has strong religious um, overtones to it. So it's an interesting idea that's amalgam of science and philosophy and theology, but there's a strong religious character in nature to the transhumanist vision where people are turning to science and technology for, uh, for salvation as opposed to, as from a Christian perspective, to the gospel itself. Would you say that transhumanism is actually a bit of an older idea going back to, say, the eugenics movement and some of the, I guess, the science that was coming up during the progressive era? Yes, most definitely. In fact, um, 
as far as I can tell, the first person to articulate the idea of transhumanism would have been the British geneticist J.B.S. Haldane, who was uh, uh, writing uh, in the early 1900s. And he wrote a book called The Atlas. And at that time, genetics was a burgeoning scientific discipline. And he envisioned a future where we would be able, through genetic manipulation, to essentially create designer human beings that had particular uh, biological traits. And in fact, at that time, he even speculated that one day we would be able to develop artificial wombs so that the whole process of reproduction could actually take place independent of the human being. Uh, and that through this, uh, through this technological process, we could create human beings that had the just right properties that would be needed to function effectively within society. And so this idea was the, the basis for Huxley's book, Brave New World, but it's, the, it's an idea that really um, what ha- has, has um, I wouldn't say necessarily fueled the eugenics movement, but it intersected in a very significant way with the eugenics movement. Right. Now, in the book, you talk about three major areas where transhumanism is taking place. You talk about in the, the study of genetics and gene editing, you talk about neuroprosthetics and uh, cybernetics, and then you also talk about anti-aging technology. Would you be able to give us an overview of those three areas and the advances that are being touted by transhumanists? Yes, and uh, you know, let's start with the, the work that's going on in computer brain interface technology, uh, because that one, to me, is far less controversial from a pro-life standpoint. And it's simply the idea that we're now developing these computer brain interface uh, uh, interfaces that allow patients uh, to be able to, or at least human test subjects, to be able to control computer hardware and software with their thoughts, uh, with their brain activities. And um, this is going to revolutionize how we treat patients who suffer from brain injuries or strokes who can't communicate anymore. They're going to be able to, to speak through computer hardware and software. Uh, this is going to allow us to revolutionize how we treat amputees who can learn to control pro, uh, robotic prosthetic limbs with their thoughts. It's going to uh, help us to, to uh, move into a new era in terms of treating patients that are quadriplegic and paraplegic, giving them mobility. Uh, and so this is a very exciting uh, technology. Also, we see advances in a completely different area, and this would be in gene editing. Thanks to the CRISPR gene editing revolution, we now have a very powerful and easy-to-use and inexpensive technique that allows us to alter the genetic makeup of organisms with a high degree of precision, and this includes human beings. And this would allow us to remove, in principle, defective areas of the genome that are defective because of mutations and replace them with healthy uh, versions of that region, uh, in a sense, treating and maybe even uh, curing people of genetic disorders, and in the grandest vision, uh, maybe even eliminating genetic disorders from the human gene pool. Now, this technology has, uh, imp- has ways it can be implemented that are very much compatible with a pro-life viewpoint, and it also has versions of the technology that involve 
ex- experimentation and manipulation uh, of, of human embryos. And many times that experimentation and manipulation would require uh, not only modifying human embryos genetically, but then screening them and then selecting embryos that, where the gene editing was effective and destroying other embryos that would be uh, ineffective and uh, ineffectively gene edited. So there's obviously strong pro-life implications there. Uh, another technology is really an umbrella of technologies called anti-aging, where we now are able to do a number of things in principle that could extend human life expectancy. And, and some of those uh, techniques that we can bring to bear involve uh, creating uh, replacement cells, usually starting with uh, either embryonic stem cells or maybe adult stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells. But again, that because you're dealing with stem cells, there's the very real possibility of, again, involving embryos in, in attaining uh, extension of life expectancy. And so uh, these are kind of the, the, the three broad areas and, and you know, the, the, the potential prospects of, you know, biomedical applications that emerge from these, but also these very same technologies could be used to enhance human beings beyond our, our natural limits kind of in, in fulfillment or in service to the transhumanist vision, where if you can do gene editing to replace defective genes, you could also do gene editing to create designer human beings or human beings that are stronger or more intelligent or more psychologically well-adjusted, at least in principle. Uh, computer brain interfaces could be used to treat people that are amputees or in quadriplegics, but also could be used to create human-machine hybrids cyborgs, if you will, that have enhanced capabilities. And of course, extending human life expectancy beyond, you know, 100 or so years to several hundred years, uh, or maybe even a few thousand years is, of course, a human enhancement. Now, something else that also uh, is of interest to, I think, the pro-life position is work that's being done trying to create artificial wombs. Now, this is nowhere near the level of, 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 of advancement that you see in these other three areas. But this is an area that has, I think, some very exciting pro-life implications in a positive sense. But it's the idea of really JBS Haldanes, and that is, can we actually have human reproduction taking place in a laboratory or a clinical setting independent of the human organism? And there's some exciting breakthroughs that are happening towards that end uh, in terms of developing artificial wombs that, uh, I, again, I think have reverberations for the, the pro-life movement. Now, you, you have a chapter in your book on artificial wombs. Uh, I haven't actually reached that chapter yet in your book, but the topic of ectogenesis, which is, of course, you know, developing embryos or fetuses in an artificial womb, uh, has actually been on my radar uh, I've written a little bit about it on, on blogs, and there's a, a, a peer-reviewed journal that's actually accepting entries for a whole issue on ectogenesis. So that, that's definitely been a topic that's kind of been on my radar. Yeah, you know, and, and what's interesting there is you've got, you know, obviously very good progress being made scientifically in terms of in vitro fertilization. Mm-hmm. But because of you know, restrictions in the U.S. and in Europe, 
where embryos in the U.S. I think have to after about after six days, I believe, have to be either implanted, frozen, or destroyed. And in the U.K., I think that the limit is about two weeks. So because of that, people have been, um, you know, creating like an artificial endometrium and things like that, where you could go from the, a few cell stage to a much more complex embryo. But on the other hand, where the real progress is being made is actually at the later stages of pregnancy, trying to create these artificial wombs that could be, in principle, used to improve the outcome of premature births. Because right now, uh, while you can get a premature you know, infant uh, at, at about 22 weeks to survive, uh, the, the, the medical uh, procedures that you have to go through in an incubator to keep that child alive are really very hard on the child, and the, and the medical outcomes many times are not that great. And so people are trying to improve, you know, the, 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 you know, the technology to treat, uh, you know, babies that are born prematurely. And there's some breakthroughs that are being made recently in terms of developing artificial wombs that would supplant the incubator that could very, uh, very realistically improve the outcome rather dramatically. And with this technology, it means that we might even be able to push survivability outside the womb to even uh, earlier than, you know, uh, 22 weeks or so, maybe 20 weeks or 18 or 19 weeks. And so once you start doing that, you now have this technology that could supplant abortions, right, or at least later-term abortions, where you could argue that abortions really should be, be illegal and that if there's a later-term abortion, that instead of aborting the fetus, or, or the embryo, you should actually put it into an artificial womb environment. So this could create some very interesting pro-life options, I think, for people that don't, for women that don't want to be pregnant, who would like to terminate their pregnancy, in which they could terminate it without necessarily leading to the, the death and the destruction of the, of the fetus or of the embryo. Oh, okay, so some of the advancements you, you mentioned were things like uh, replacing limbs for an amputee victim or even enhancing people. So we, we can make a distinction between therapeutic and enhancements. Uh, do you personally believe that the technology we come up with should only be used therapeutically, or do you believe that using it for enhancement is also permissible ethically? Yeah, th that's a, a really great question. And and part of the challenge there ethically is the distinction between enhancements and between uh, therapeutic uses is not necessarily always that clear cut. And, and so let's use an example that um, actually has some relevance to us today. And I think we're all, you know, painfully aware of the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic. And, yeah. you know, th this virus, gains entry into uh, lung cells uh, through binding to a, a, a protein on the cell surface of lung cells. So that, that binding of that virus particle to, the, to that receptor on the cell surface is the, the gateway or the portal for entry into the cell where the virus then can do uh, its insidious work. Well, uh, about a, a year ago, in China, November of 2018, a Chinese scientist announced 
the, the creation of genetically modified human beings who uh, were genetically designed to be resistant to the HIV virus. And what he did is he used CRISPR gene editing at the embryo stage to disable a gene that codes for a protein called CCR5. And this is the protein that is expressed on the surface of immune cells that the HIV virus binds to and gains entry into the cells. And so what he did is he created, again, human beings that would be genetically resistant to certain path to the HIV pathogen. And so you could easily see this kind of medical procedure gaining uh, application given how frightened and, and how devastating everybody, how, how frightened we are about the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, rightfully so, and how devastating this is, not only in terms of public health, but also now the economic devastation caused by this. You could easily see this leading to uh, people motivated to do similar kinds of gene editing experiments uh, in human beings to make us resistant to other pathogens that could likely cause pandemics of this sort, but maybe even pandemics that would be worse, worse in terms of the, 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 you know, the biomedical uh, consequences of acquiring that viral in, in infection. And so, is, but the question here is that, is that an enhancement or is that a therapeutic treatment? Is the, is the point that I'm trying to get to and not very effectively. Uh, but so, so you get the idea, right, uh, is that you could make an argument that uh, genetically modifying human beings to be resistant to pathogens is actually therapeutic. It's a, a form of preventative medicine. Uh, or you could argue that this is actually an enhancement because now human beings actually have a genetic capability that we wouldn't naturally have. So that line is very blurred. And the, the ethics are really very complex. Is it really wrong to genetically modify a human being to have enhanced physical strength? Uh, and, 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 and again, this is, this is messy because the technology that you would use to do, do something like that would also be technology that could be used to treat people with a muscle-wasting disorder. But as you start to get older, even if you don't have muscle-wasting disorders, you begin to lose muscle mass. It's just part of the natural aging process. So are you treating somebody who is older who's beginning to lose muscle mass with this technology? Are you treating a, a biomedical condition, or are you enhancing that individual? So the, the, this is really um, a, 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 an ethical gray area, and I actually haven't made a decision if, if limited enhancements are, are okay or not, I'm leaning towards saying I don't see them as being problematic, but intuitively I recognize that there seems to be a line that we shouldn't probably cross, but exactly where that line is positioned, frankly, I don't know. Yeah, do you think the, um, the lines might be a little, a little less gray if it, when it comes to, for example, someone amputating a perfectly healthy limb to replace it with a prosthetic arm, as opposed to someone, say, putting on like an exoskeleton, like you mentioned in, in your book, where they, they don't have to amputate any healthy limbs, but they can put on a suit that helps uh, kind of amplify their, their natural, you know, their natural abilities, like giving someone uh, more strength, for example, to lift heavier objects or, or something like that. Do you think that might kind of affect the, the moral equation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you can definitely make an argument. 
that, you know, if you're purposely amputating a healthy limb just to gain, you know, uh, enhanced strength through a robotic prosthetic limb, that probably is something that I think, you know, it's easier to say that that probably is not an enhancement that we should engage in. But I don't see any issue, as you're pointing out, with wearing an exoskeleton. But I think you could reasonably push the argument and say, or push back and say, is there anything really fundamentally wrong with me removing uh, one of my biological limbs if I can replace it with a uh, limb that actually gives me, again, enhanced strength? And maybe there's a reason why I would actually need to have that enhanced strength, where having a robotic limb would actually facilitate my ability to carry out a particular job that is deemed necessary for, you know, for society. So you could begin to construct reasonable scenarios where that, that amputation and then replacement with a robotic prosthetic limb could actually be deemed something that we would not be uncomfortable with from an ethical standpoint. So, again, it, it's, it's really a gray area where I think people could – who share the same worldview and the same, you know, dedication, I think, to preserving the dignity and the sanctity of human life could actually really wind up in very different places as to what is or isn't ethical. Yeah. In chapter one of your book, and this, this kind of lends itself to the same kind of discussion, uh, you mentioned that gene modification has real world application in, for example, horse racing. Now, my question would be, wouldn't it be unethical to race a genetically modified horse against a non-genetically modified horse, or maybe one that hasn't been modified as severely as another? And we, we might think of this in, even in terms of humanity, where I don't know who out there has seen the movie Gattaca. You know, we, we can think of a human society progressing to the point where genetic modifications become kind of a routine, but not everyone would be able to afford them, or some parents might not believe in genetic modification. And so we might think that genetically modifying some people might lead to to an unfair imbalance in society. And so I guess the question would be, would it be, for example, if we're talking about horse racing, would we need a special category for a genetically modified competition, or would that be something that we, we would think might not be ethical to enhance someone's natural abilities for the purposes of competition? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, I think you're, you're, you're asking the right questions, and, and the way you frame those questions I think is extremely helpful because, like, I mean, let's just use horse racing as an example. I mean, obviously it would be unfair to use a super horse against a, a horse that has been bred through, you know, traditional methods uh, at, that's part of, you know, the current horse racing industry. But you can easily see people really enjoying watching these super horses compete against one another, where now, you know, it, it would almost maybe be something like auto racing, where, you know, part of the, 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 the sport involves can you, given, given the parameters or the constraints, design a car that outperforms, you know, your competitor's car, right? right? And and so you could see, you know, that being part of the, the, the thrill of the sport is that you put in place these parameters and then you see if your scientists and your technologists can, can out, you know, perform one another in terms of the technological breakthroughs and advances. So you could see that happening. I, I, I think if you're an animal rights person, you probably would be very uncomfortable with that. But you could easily see that happening, or you could even see something like that happening 
with uh, professional athletes who would be willing to allow themselves to undergo those kind of genetic modifications to compete in certain types of games or certain types of sports where they are going into this with the, 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 in, with, with an informed consent to be, you know, to be modified in that way. But in terms of society at large, I think you are also raising a really good point, and that is that this could very quickly lead to a, 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 a society of haves and have-nots, of, you know, of technological haves and have-nots where some people have enhancements and those enhancements are going to allow them to be more effective, more productive, more capable, which is going to allow them to have wealth disparity, which then is going to allow them to even further exacerbate those, the, 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 that advantage that they have compared to people that couldn't afford the technology or could only afford, you know, second or third generation technologies. And then, of course, what about people that decide they don't want to have the enhancements? Are they going to be marginalized or, or you know, be viewed as being, again, uh, even, you know, um, as substandard in terms of their status within society? Or you could see situations where people are pressured to undergo genetic modifications. So imagine a scenario where we now have a, a, a genetic uh, therapy that could eliminate a particular genetic disease uh, if you do this at the embryo stage. And let's say this disease causes a lot of pain and suffering, and it's very expensive to manage from a medical standpoint. It could be that you now are forcing people to undergo screening before they have children. And if either parent has the gene that's defective that causes that genetic disorder, that they have to then uh, do in vitro fertilization coupled with gene editing and then some kind of selection and, and destruction of, of, you know, of selection of the embryos that have been effectively gene edited and destroying other embryos that haven't. Now, through that process, you could eliminate that genetic disorder from the human gene pool. You could have medical savings. But what if, if you are a pro-life person and you're uncomfortable with that? Are you going to be pressured into doing that, you know, against your, 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 uh, you know, your moral and ethical, you know, viewpoint? Or, or um, uh, are you going to be simply prohibited from having children? Or if you have children that way, are they then, then going to be denied medical care and medical treatment because they didn't, you know, agree, because you as parents didn't agree to that medical or, or to that gene editing procedure? So you can begin to see how this could be horrifically abused uh, to create really a, a dystopian world of genetic haves and have-nots. And really, I think not only, you know, uh, again, separate segments of society that have different advantages and disadvantages, but also you could easily see this as being something that would force a type of eugenics or force a type of genetic discrimination. You know, I remember on uh, one of the old Twilight Zone episodes, uh, there was a, a scenario like that where a woman, she was in a hospital and she had to, it was regarding plastic surgery where they wanted everybody to meet the standard of beautiful. And if you were born not meeting that standard, you had to go undergo a surgery, I think when you're 18 years old or 21 years old, otherwise you would be, become a social outcast. Well, uh, the episode really revealed that she was actually had been born and she had, was a very beautiful person naturally 
um, but the standard of beauty had shifted to where she needed plastic surgery to enhance herself in a certain way. Otherwise, she would be considered a social outcast. I was thinking about that while we were discussing this, um, that that could be end up being the result is somebody who's, say, too poor or not in a favored class. Uh, they become a social outcast because they don't have the enhancements like, well, what's wrong with you? You wanted to keep your body the same way that it was. And instead, instead of getting the enhancement to make yourself stronger, say, enhancing your sex appeal or enhancing your intelligence, in Humans 2.0, uh, Fuzz and, and Dr. Samples use a lot of examples from comic books, but really I, I, watch a, I tend to watch a lot of uh, science fiction. And so science fiction movies have really kind of spurred my, uh, my imagination on a lot of these issues, like the movie Gattaca that I talked about, and uh, even bad movies like Transcendence, which came out uh, a couple or a few years ago, can help kind of spur these, these questions. I would recommend Gattaca. I wouldn't recommend Transcendence for anyone who's kind of interested in, in these topics. Uh, Transcendence was a, was a really bad movie. So, Fuzz, doesn't the pursuit to ease human suffering and even to improve humans lend itself to the idea that we're somehow special or unique? Yes. I mean, you know, one of the, the big questions that centers around this transhumanist vision is really the, the status of human beings. Uh, you know, in the cosmos, what is our place in the cosmos? And, you know, if you are embracing kind of a transhumanist vision where you view human beings as inherently flawed as a product of an evolutionary history, that you would argue that there's nothing really special about us because if we can obviously improve upon our strength or an intelligence or emotional capabilities, then obviously we're not exceptional. Obviously there's nothing special about us. You know, and in fact, they would argue that if from an evolutionary perspective, we are really at, at, a, at a way station right now as human beings on our evolutionary journey. And so why not take control of evolution and, and shape human beings, you know, according to our will and, and, and so that we are perfectly suited for the world that we are going to uh, inherit in the future. And so that whole mindset uh, – uh, undermines the notion of human exceptionalism and with it, uh, you know, the the parallel concept of the image of God. Uh, But, you know, one of the things that I point out is that really uh, what transhumanism is doing is actually ironically uh, demonstrating, I think, in a very powerful way that, that human beings are actually exceptional. Because think about this, we're the only creature that exists today or that has ever existed in human history that has the capability of even envisioning taking control of our own evolution and modifying our biological makeup. No other creature has ever even been able to entertain that, that prospect or that, that, that the, 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 the prospect of doing something like that, including creatures like Neanderthals. And so this ability to do this stems from in, in our ability to engage in science and to develop technology from what we've learned about investigating the world around us. And that capacity to do science stems from our ability to engage in symbolism, which is the ability to represent the world around us with symbols and then to, to communicate those symbols to one another through language and music and art. And in fact, we have the ability to uh, manipulate those symbols and embed them one within another 
to create alternative hypotheses, alternative scenarios, which is how we are able then to construct scientific hypotheses and then test those ideas. And the idea of symbolism and our ability to manipulate symbols, I argue, would argue, is a manifestation of our, not only our exceptional nature, because we seem to be unique in this ability, but also I think it's, it's a, 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 a scientific descriptor of what I would understand as, as the image of God, as somebody who holds to the resemblance view for the image of God. And so to me, what I think transhumanism is doing is, in, is inadvertently presenting us with a very powerful um, argument for human exceptionalism and for the idea that humans bear God's image. And if that's the case, then I think it gives justification, scientific justification, uh, to the idea of the, the biblical concept of human nature and human worth and human value. And something that I find to be also ironic is that transhumanists seem to be absolutely obsessed with the idea of, of preserving human life, that they see it as actually a tragedy when human beings die, that, that they, they think it's a tragedy to think that our species is going to disappear and go extinct. And yet if we're just simply the product of an evolutionary history, like every other life form on the planet, then, then why are we exceptional? Why are we special? Why should we devote this kind of effort to save, our, to save individuals, to save ourselves? Uh, this goes far beyond the, this, um, this desire for survivability, right? This, this instinct for survivability, this seems to be connected to the notion that, that we somehow have hope, purpose, and destiny that's unique to us as a human species. And so implicit in transhumanist vision is the idea of human exceptionalism, though they, they want to deny that but with everything that they have. Nobody is looking to invest this level of effort to understand and then to develop the technology to make dogs immortal or cats immortal uh, or any other species immortal for that matter. But we are doing that or want to do that for human beings. So to me, you know, I think transhumanism, though it does uh, on the surface challenge this notion of human exceptionalism, when you actually peel back the layers and think about it more carefully, it really does promote, uh, I think, the notion of human exceptionalism and, and ultimately the, the biblical concept of human nature. Hmm. That was actually going to be my next question, but you already covered it. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So th this was actually um, a question that occurred to me as we were, as you were talking about the, some of the advancements regarding controlling prosthetic limbs with your thoughts. And that this also kind of has to do with, uh, with how you view, you know, the doctrine of Imago Dei or, or philosophy of mind and, you know, what, what makes us us, I suppose. But regarding the ability to control things like computers or prosthetic limbs with your mind, uh, this kind of raises the question uh, regarding a debate amongst materialists or substance dualists about whether or not the, uh, whether or not your thoughts are immaterial or whether or not your thoughts are all just, just physical. And so if, if you're able to, for example, you know, move a, move a computer just by thinking, does this show that, that our, our thoughts are inherently physical things or is there still an immaterial aspect to our thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, uh, you're raising a great question. Uh, and, and I think the, the advances that are happening in computer brain interface technology are really going to 
to push on the, the mind-brain problem in some very interesting and fun ways. Uh, uh, you know, but these are also, I think, very important issues because I, I think it's very easy if, to see that what's happening with computer brain interface technology and then to argue, well, this is, is um, indirect evidence that really the mind and the brain are one and the same. You know, or that the, maybe the mind is an emergent property from the brain, but that 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 there really isn't, a, you know, a mind that is an immaterial entity that's clearly distinct from the brain. It's either interdependent or, it, you know, or it's uh, one and the same. But I think you could actually develop, you know, uh, uh, models, you know, I don't know, philosophical, theological models, where you would argue that that, that there is this immaterial entity called the mind that can then influence the brain, and then when it influences the brain, can trigger electrical activity that then can be transmitted into a machine context. And likewise, that, that in information from the machine can be transmitted ele- you know, electrically to the brain that can then mm-hmm. to learn to interpret that information, and then you, the mind can apprehend that for decision-making purposes. And so to me, it's a crude analogy, but I think it's helpful is to think of the, the brain as like computer hardware and the mind like computer software, where in a sense both have to be intact, both have to be functioning well for that computer system to ultimately function. And that you know, hardware without software is useless and software without hardware is useless. Uh, but that you know, the, 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 the activity in software can again influence the operation of hardware and likewise, I think the mind can then influence the activity of the brain. So while I do think this, you know, the, the, the advances that are happening in computer brain interface technology are very provocative in light of the mind-brain problem, I think it's still possible to retain kind of a, 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 a substance dualist view uh, in, in light of these advances, though I could easily see people appropriating these advances to argue against that view. I was thinking that as as you were talking about it, that it might be possible for someone who's a strict materialist to argue that this shows that that the that our thoughts are inherently material things because the because we can use our thoughts and our our brain to control these things. But yeah, so uh, yeah, so I I definitely think it's still possible to to uphold the uh, substance dualism in light of these advances. And so that leads into another question. Then, do transhumanists tend to be primarily people of faith or non-believers? Uh, in my experience, they, they primarily are people that would be non-believers. Uh, that, you know, uh, because in, in effect, uh, what I see is most people that uh, uh, hold to a transhumanist view would, uh, again, take the view that, that human beings are exclusively material entities and that when we die, we die, that's it, we, we, we no longer exist. And so for many people that, that are advocates of the transhumanist vision, this is essentially a, 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 an eschatological concern that they have uh, because from an atheistic perspective, if without transhumanism, there's really no hope or purpose or destiny for any individual or for humanity. Uh, we, we are destined to... to as individuals to become extinct, species to become extinct. But with, with transhumanism, you now can, you know, f- foster some kind of hope 
and some kind of sense of a purpose and destiny. Uh, and so that's the real strong motivation. Now, you know, from a Christian worldview perspective, my hope and purpose and destiny is intertwined with the person of Christ. It's tied up into the person of Christ. But I also realize that, that there will be a future where I will continue to exist uh, both spiritually and physically. Uh, and, and, so, uh, and, and so in a sense, Christianity is a form of transhumanism where we're promised glorified bodies you know, after the resurrection, you know, and that where we will be granted a, a, a type of immortality, which we would call eternal life, you know, and we would be able to, to live for eternity uh, in a utopian type of reality. So, you know, Christianity is offering everything that transhumanism strives for. And this is where that religious overtone uh, comes to play in transhumanism is that it literally it represents a, a type of gospel for people that are materialists where, you know, our only hope for salvation is with uh, extending our life expectancy as long as we, we possibly can. Hopefully it's in some way attaining a practical immortality. Uh, so, uh, so I see mostly materialists embracing uh, kind of a transhumanist view. Yeah. You know, we kind of already covered this, but since a lot of materialists, they, they reject the view that we were created in the image of God. What is their, what kind of a basis do they give for ascribing value to human beings? Since obviously the transhumanist view does ascribe a certain value to human beings that we want to enhance ourselves and make ourselves even, like you said, able to live on for hundreds, if not thousands of years that we see some sort of value in preserving human life. Uh, What is their basis for believing that human life should be protected? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, I mean, to some degree, this is, I think, you know, part of the point that I was trying to make earlier is that intuitively they recognize that there is value uh, to human life and to human existence. And even though they want to deny the idea of human exceptionalism, even though they, they, they want to uh, argue that human, human beings have no inherent value or worth that goes beyond uh, – any other animal or any other organism that has ever existed in life's history, uh, they can't help but to, to, to articulate uh, implicitly and sometimes explicitly the, the real tragedy that, that results when human beings die or the real tragedy when, uh, that awaits us if we go uh, extinct as a human species. So uh, any justification that they would have uh, is almost like an intuitive justification that they're presenting, uh, and, and yet that in, that intuition is is completely misaligned with their worldview. I mean, in hmm. a sense, transhumanism is, is really something that shouldn't exist in a materialistic, atheistic worldview, right? It's really if you if you live out the if you play out the implications, I should say. Of, of atheism, of materialism, then, um, and what it means for human worth and value, then there really should be no motivation or impetus for transhumanism whatsoever. I mean, it, it ultimately, uh, transhumanism is ultimately this implicit and explicit recognition that human beings do have value and worth, 
that, that death is the enemy, that, that somehow it's tragic when human beings suffer, that it's tragic when human beings fail to flourish, that, that utopia is something that we should aspire to. Uh, these are ideas that are, I think, uh, ideas that flow out of a Christian worldview um, and, and are, are, you know, ideas that are embedded into our, our very nature as human beings. Uh, and and I, I think the best explanation for why these ideas are embedded in us comes from the, the, the Christian faith and the idea that we bear God's image, but also the idea that, that we were created to have a relationship with our creator, that we have a, a desire to, to, to touch or to grasp hold of that which is transcendent, uh, and that, that we, we have a, a law that's written on our heart. Uh, and, and I think these things naturally lead to this desire to see human beings live forever, you know, and this desire for a utopia. Uh, so those desires flow naturally out of the Christian concept of human nature. They're completely uh, misaligned in, a trans, in, a, in an atheistic, materialistic worldview. How can the subject of transhumanism be used as a catalyst for a discussion regarding the value of human life and perhaps a point of agreement to build on? Yeah, well, you know, to me, I think the idea of human exceptionalism is the place to start, you know, because if you can really establish with scientific rigor the idea that we really stand apart as human beings, that we somehow are distinct and, and different from other creatures, and then show people that this idea does indeed align with the, the idea of the image of God, I think th that is where we have the bridge point. Uh, to, to say that, look, with these emerging technologies, we have an obligation, if human beings really are exceptional, to, to value and to do what we can to preserve human life, uh, to make sure that there is justice in the world, uh, that, 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 you know, that, we, that, um, that human dignity uh, is never compromised. You know, and that, I think, naturally leads to uh, essentially adopting an ethical framework that would be strongly uh, pro-life. So to me, I think the idea of human exceptionalism is the place to start. And I think this mm -hmm. is where transhumanism has done this enormous amount of, of favors uh, for people that are pro-life. Okay. So then we are uh, com coming up to the end of our time together here. And so Fuzz, uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, well, uh, I've got a, a like everybody else, a Facebook page, a, a Twitter page. Uh, if people um, also can go to our, the, the website for the organization that I work for, which is Reasons to Believe, that website is www.reasons.org. So those are some ways that people can uh, connect with me. Okay. Well, um, Fuzz, thank you again for, for giving your time to come on and talk about this important issue. We appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, Buzz. Well, if you appreciated the discussion that we had here today, we would just ask that you share this around social media. You can rate and review us on our Facebook page and on iTunes. And if you haven't subscribed to us yet, you can subscribe to us there on iTunes also. Um, now, this is a, a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other uh, work that I do in the pro-life movement. 
As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters, people like you, Keep me being able to do the work that I do. Uh, if you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes and that'll uh, get to me as well. Now, uh, we do have one upcoming guest scheduled. Uh, I've been in contact with uh, John Elefante, who is the former lead singer of Kansas and one of the current singers for the Jay Seculo Band. Uh, I've got him coming on the podcast hopefully next Thursday, April 2nd. I haven't yet been able to hammer out a time with him yet, but uh, that's going to be uh, an exciting one that, that we have coming up here, and hopefully we'll get that hammered out. And so pay attention to our Facebook page, and we'll get the specifics on that as soon as we get that uh, nailed down. So, Nathan, uh, again, thank you for, for joining me here as well. And uh, Yeah, so with that... Once again, uh, with this viral outbreak going on, you know, make sure you're washing your hands, keeping your social distance, and the podcast will continue on. And so thank you, our listeners, for joining us, and then we will see you next time. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.